Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Pratt Library and to Poetry and Conversation with Julia Wendell, Melanie McCabe, and Shelley Puhak. We invite you to stay after the program to chat with the poets, purchase their books at the back table, and enjoy some more refreshments. Afterwards, please also take a minute to fill out an evaluation form on the back table. If you'd like to hear more about poetry programs at the Pratt Library, you're welcome to sign up for our email list also on the back table, along with the flyers um, about some coming events at the library. Our next poetry and conversation will take place Wednesday, November 5th at 6.30 with poets Ailish Hopper and Melanie Henderson. We invite you to visit the Humanities Department in its temporary location on the mezzanine of the Periodicals Department here in the Central Library for books on reading and writing poetry. Tonight, after all three poets have read, we'll have a question and answer period. Since this reading will be podcast, please ask your question into the microphone. And now Shailene will introduce the poets. Hello, I'm Shaylee, and I also work here. Um, just going to do a brief introduction of our first reader, Shelley Puhak. Shelley Puhak is the author of Guinevere in Baltimore, selected by Charles Simic for the Anthony Hecht Prize, Waywiser 2013. Her first collection, Stalin in Aruba, was awarded the Towson Prize for Literature. Puhak's poems have appeared in many journals, including Alaska Quarterly Review, Belois Poetry Journal, Field, Kenyon Review Online, The Missouri Review, and Ninth Letter. Puhak is the Eichner Professor of Writing at Notre Dame of Maryland University. Guinevere in Baltimore is an astonishing book. Where else can you find the mythical romantic world of King Arthur and his court translated to shamelessly unromantic Baltimore? What other poetry seamlessly combines T.S. Eliot, James Bond, infomercials, and the Bromo Seltzer Tower? And who knew that music and imagery could make the tawdriness and despair of a purely material world the matchstick width that separates desire and dread? Not just hilarious, but oddly beautiful and hopeful, as in these lines, mystifying oracle Ouija trembled in her eggshell negligee, Yes, yes, yes. We could never have imagined such a book, but it knows all about us. Please help me to welcome Shelley Puhak. Thank you. It's always nice to have a hometown crowd. And I want you to know I'm not texting. I'm just setting the timer. (laughs) Um, So... Baltimore. Um, when you were just, that was a great introduction, by the way, and thank you. Um, <laughs> it's kind of ominous. <laughs> I'll just wait. I'll just wait. I'll just wait. I'm not sure. Are we like supposed to evacuate? <laughs> That's what I'm kicking everyone else out or sending them up here. Um, So I was just thinking about what you were saying about Baltimore. On the way here, um, I was in traffic, as many of you were, but there was the unicycle rider. Have you seen the unicycle rider? Only in Baltimore. Like, the guy I pulled up to the light, we had to roll down our windows and just kind of crack up and roll them back out. And he said, 
uh, only in Baltimore. Um, yeah, but so going down Martin Luther King Boulevard, guy on a unicycle. It was awesome. Um, so I just want to start by saying a lot, um, all of the poems in this, these, this book are dramatic monologues. And so I'm going to tell you just a teeny bit about the characters. Um, and then I'm going to read eight poems so you can count down. Um, so there's a dramatis personae at the beginning of the book, um, just like there would be with a play. And there's a speaker. Um, there's Guinevere, the queen. Um, Arthur is her husband, CEO of Camelot Transatlantic Shipping and King of the Britons. And there's a whole other host of characters. There's Elaine of Corbenic, alternately of Chicago, who is daughter of the Fisher King, keeper of the grail, um, Lancelot's lover, and also mother of Galahad, and various other sort of... Um, assorted court hangers on um, ladies and lovers. So I'm going to um, kind of open with the first, uh, the first two poems. One is kind of Guinevere when she first writes to Lancelot in Baltimore, and the other is uh, his response. So this is Guinevere, facing 40 in Baltimore, writes to Lancelot. Turn it all off. Light a candle to read this and then unplug the toaster, unhitch the cable, the Wi-Fi, break the heart of every circuit, shut it all down. The king's satellites are circling, tracking our ambling hearts even here, not upon stacked Belgian block, but earlier, actual cobblestones. And the king's satellites are neither hungry nor lonely, they won't scratch and scratch until they scab. But dear, how I itch electric. So I'm on my way, tripping cobblestones, each ridged like a hip bone. I imagine them pitched at my head, not the crack when they connect, but the wind when they miss. Adulterous. Love. His satellites are circling. His cell towers are triangulating. So don't call and burn this. Then blow the candle out and wait. Wear your armor. What's a little extra weight? And this is uh, Lancelot responding. He's en route, stopping off at Fort McHenry. Oh, say, can you see from 95 North the swath of city from stadium to incinerator smokestack jutting up like teeth too crowded in the bay's small mouth? I've seen in Ginny, darling, I can no longer breathe. Throbbing, I got off the interstate, cut through an industrial park. Then I saw an alley named Excalibur <clears throat> Drive. How? Could I not pull over and sob? My heart is apparently impure, clotted up with more than cholesterol. In the afternoon meeting, I was pulled off the grail. The account went to one less jaded, my own bastard. Damned Galahad, kicked out of Oberlin thrice, now sitting in Seattle rain every weekend, protesting, waterproof in his Patagonia, and linked up with his iPhone. There's ignorance, and then there's innocence. If you don't want me, Jenny, 
I don't know what will weigh me down. There's gravity, and then there's being grave. I rode the rim of highway like the crease of your lips, searching by the twilight's last gleaming. This fort offered succor. Here, the sky is spangled with spiral galaxies, and the bay refracts the dream of their strange light, luminescence gone liquid. Ginny, there's even light glinting off your fillings. There's a city stuffed in your mouth. All right, I'm a little bit of um, I guess a, a science nerd. So the next few poems, you'll see a lot of um, references to, to parasites. Um, I don't think they need any further explanation, but I feel like I should uh, apologize in advance for those of you with weak stomachs. So this one is uh, Guinevere fancying herself a wanton microbiologist. <laughs> This This honeybee, a fly lays an egg in its abdomen. How? The literature isn't specific. Three nights later, the poor parasitized bee slips out of the hive, compelled to strange light. Fly larvae spill out as the bee dies trying to nuzzle a porch light. This mouse, the protozoa lost in its mouth, how, how should I know, would rather live in the gut of a cat. So it convinces the mouse to saunter right up to a cat. Snap. Just as a parasite in the right brain of the wrong woman, how? She's stuck cleaning the litter box compels, leave the engine running, walk the razor's edge. This girl, just a slip, a shadow, when she first stole across the courtyard to meet you. And so I edged off the ledge of the castle walls, compelled. Just two more parasite poems. <laughs> All right, Lancelot at the Home Depot. If I can stop the weeds, start the savings, can we still be tender upon my fresh mown fescue? So you won't complain I'm triangulating things, won't complain about the clot of mosquitoes in the unfinished pond, the pearls of grubs under the back lawn. I'm anticipating pests I never knew before. Thrips the size of iron filings, chinch bugs siphoning sap from the grass, cherry oat aphids crippled wingless as they age. Pests never sated, only staved off. And for those that plague us nights inside, they've got bed bug foggers, fire ant bait, all 30% off. This morning, I found a groundhog chattering in my new trap. He earned free shipping to the state park. I still need some twine, stakes, a chainsaw for the sick elm, wire snips for the space and time continuum. Objects in motion, you see, experience time 
slowly, too slowly, truly. The hands on your encrusted anniversary watch lag behind whenever you fly home to Camelot. I'm outpacing you, darling, but I'm all about more saving, more doing, whatever it takes. And soon the salesman will return with just the right pesticide underarm and proof. A brochure full of photos of dead aphids, woolly with fungus, their mouths still sucking the dew off the leaf. Um, this next one is Arthur de Guinevere while watching Occupy Wall Street unfold on the evening news. <laughs> and I think the only thing you need to know beforehand is the schistosoma worms. Um, They've been mistaken for sexually transmitted diseases in the past because they take up residence in your bladder and exit that way. Okay. So this is Arthur. I've just read of those schistosoma worms with marriages more stable than the humans they inhabit. I've learned of this snail fever, this disease their loyalty breeds. Eggs in our bladders, buoyancy in our blood, cling and twist, pile and chafe. Their mating clots us up, creates an ache between our legs we might mistake for desire. My head to your breast, would I hear those worms sigh? There are pesticide-laden apples, lead-coated combs, a dozen things to fear. When the worms writhe, there's no microphone small enough to listen. What to tell our subjects? What alibi for staying put when the weather's mild and the sun sets pink with particulates? Long married, let's try to occupy one another and forget the tents downtown. Forget that you have fallen sick. Let's tell the court biographer the clouds were thick with carbon, the doves snored, the horses dozed. The pang between your legs was that of devotion, parasitic, and the briar arched up enclosed all of us under its tent. This one I'm gonna, uh, is Searching for Baltimore. It has a line after Jack Gilbert, and it's in the speaker's voice. It's kind of the narrator of these, uh, these poems. Not a fox, a rat, that nibbles my muffin top, nudges past my hips, that burrows between me and my yellowed sheets and dreams the wharfs too. Bond Street, Henderson's, Broadway Pier, dreams the dumpster scraps and the soft clutch of soil, dreams the dozen chambers under each dock and the bay breeze that snakes through. My rat, tunneling the slink and sprawl of suburbs. There were too many spaces between us, but not space enough to shunt love and haul it home. The train since dismantled, we took to the automobile, my rat and me, 
coupling and switching the tracks of our bodies in the back seat. Arrive to find the city sealed up against us, the trash cans empty at 3 a.m. And no subway, but oh, the sewers. My rat stayed, but I slunk home, scrabbled back up the roof, and chewed through the next three years. Made do with meadow until they paved it over. Then hitched a ride back, got an apartment, lined it with shredded paper, sacking, cloth. Looked up the rat and asked him out. My rat, now grown both tall and fat, handles me exactly as one spreads out the bedsheets, flapping me out of myself, smoothing, smoothing. There, there, lie flat. I've got two more. This next one is uh, Lancelot after being caught downloading porn. (laughs) Look, when the arborist called, the old oak in the yard was too far along. I sobbed in the Target parking lot, recalling the birch of your body and the oak of my own desire, pyramidal in youth, thinning in autumn. And the day after the machinery came, the cat had to be put down. Oh, the simplicity of a needle after so many tools with teeth. Saws, chippers, grinders. I'd think the cat imperative and the oak incidental to our story, but the arborist, had the arborist not said deciduous over and over, explaining how this oak startled as a sapling, had always been hollow. And now even its stump gone. Easy, too easy to let the cat crumple. Someone came with the needle, someone hummed among the last fingers of leaf. Look, a hollow tree stands only on the new wood it urges up. I'm only hunting for a bit of bark to peel back the surprise of the pail just beneath the dappled birch of any body. Put away your quivering lip, my dear. We were always deciduous. And I'm going to close with, uh, this one seems uh, autumnal and you know, suits the season. Um, it's called Letter to an Old Flame. October, darling, you're impossible. How early you get dark. And who will measure the gap between these two animals curled up against your chill? You wait for me in your woods at dusk. Up your street, a girl is borrowing fire, leaning into an idling, unmarked truck. Got a light? I've asked, too, for a flint and fire steel to my fat wood, a cupped hand, so I might tend a spark in wind. But you gave three men the Nobel Prize for proof that each day we lose more light, proof were to end not in flame, but ice. The French still speak of the little death, 
But what of your small kindnesses, smaller deaths? That chipmunk maimed I finished off with a steel shovel, my backyard pyre of his old letters and your spent leaves? What of that God who wants back his fire? All I want, a warm brick for my bed to be rid of the gap that matchstick with that separates desire and dread to draw hard enough to keep it all lit. We always measure wrong. October, what could you know of distance? Your leaves past flame are carpeting cobblestones, muted blaze, scarlet smoke and char, layers. Who I was at 15, how you still smolder. And his sweater, woolen, over button down, starched, over wisp of undershirt, over what we might make of the embers. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shelley. That was amazing. Um, and next, we're going to hear from Melanie McCabe. Melanie McCabe is a high school English and creative writing teacher in Arlington, Virginia. Her second book of poems, What the Neighbors Know, was published in 2014 by Future Cycle Press. Her first book, History of the Body, was published by David Robert Books in 2012. Her poems have appeared on Poetry Daily as well as in Best New Poets 2010, the Georgia Review, the Massachusetts Review, the Cincinnati Review, Bellingham Review, Alaska Quarterly Review, Shenandoah, and numerous other journals. Her work also appears in the latest editions of Bedford St. Martin's Poetry and Introduction and the Bedford Introduction to Literature, Reading, Thinking, Writing. What the Neighbors Know reaches imaginatively towards a space where what the neighbors know is what we know, where dreams and memories are an entree into alternative realities, other lives. At the same time, the poems respect the imagination's limits. Look harder, nobody could make this up, says the speaker of one poem. The book is full of long, hard looks at the gaps between the world as it is and what we would like to make it. Through poetic vision, what we have loved and lost becomes vivid yet remains distant, making the book like a twilight journey through rooms no longer ours. Here are the old houses, but moons with different faces rise from the windows. The long lawns are dappled with ghosts, she writes in one of many lovely passages. Please help me to welcome Melanie McCabe. Thank you very much, and um, it's really nice to be here in Baltimore because my daughters live here, so it's always a pleasure to to come out and be able to read um, and see them at the same time. Um, Thank you for that introduction, too. That was great. Um, I'm going to read a few poems, three or four poems from my new book, What the Neighbors Know, and then I'm going to read a couple from my older book, History of the Body. Um, I'm going to open with the title poem and uh, what the neighbors know. This poem 
um, is, is based on this idea that most of us, I think, live in communities where our neighbors know only a piece of us, but not the entire truth. And um, I, I think, you know, probably that's something that, that's common to, to many of us. What the neighbors know is so small, it might fit in my mailbox. I wish they would put it there, unfolded, explicit, so I could be certain of what they think they saw. The shaky black and white reel that they have colorized, the beginnings and middles cobbled to find their way to the end. No one will sign his name. Each separate letter will be cut from newspapers, magazines, to keep the scales of knowing unbalanced. We have a piece of your life that we plan to torture into something we recognize. We want more pieces. But even then, we won't give you this one back. I once had all of their names, but didn't keep them. Did they keep mine? If we passed each other in some far-off town, I wouldn't know them though I have lived beside them for nearly 30 years. Anonymity is a chosen loneliness, but a secret in a cul-de-sac has a fleeting life. Their eyes on my comings and goings, my middling tragedy, are a kind of extortion, even if they never open their mouths. If I do not give them reasons, they will think I had none. If enough people paint me a heart of pitch, a rudderless integrity, how could all of them be wrong? Whatever the neighbors know, it's not enough. But the rest of the story is not mine to tell. See me then, half in shadow. Or turn me, if you must, toward your lurid light. I will grow older, quieter, until no one believes the tale you pin on me. I will wear sensible shoes. I will outfox you by being too dull to be bad. Um, This next poem, which is called Foresight, um, I hope also is something that people might have sort of a sort of common experience of, where people tell you not to do something and you know you shouldn't do it, And you do it anyway. (laughs) I know precisely what to do to avert disaster and do not do it. My friends are wary, prudent. I can read their minds. Their blink of alarm, the way they bite their lips, gaze down into the setting moons of their fingernails, are signs they do not mean to give, and yet... I see everything. It saddens me to peer into the shadows of the wrong road and to take it anyway. On the insides of my eyelids, I write screenplays to scare myself and come to no good in any of them. I err on tiptoe. I file extensions. No one finds me because I hide behind my own door. I finger the numbers of my cell phone, but rarely call. 
My silences spool out like dropped thread. Of course, flight occurs to me, but I live within walls. I am the seat at the table borrowed from another table. I was not invited. Still, I know what etiquette calls for. I can hear reason dictating in a nearby room. I can hear the pencil scratching over paper, taking every word of it down. Um, I am a creative writing teacher in a high school in Arlington, and um, often when my students do assignments, I do them with them. And uh, a couple years ago, I had them working on memoir, and I decided I would write memoir with them. And they said, what are you going to write about, Miss McCabe? I said, I'm going to write about my first love in ninth grade. And I said, ooh, you know, they thought that was fun. So um, I, I set out to do it kind of, you know, just in a laughing kind of way. But what I found was that it, it, um, it brought a lot of it back. And um, that's what this poem is about. It's called Writing Memoir. I set out to rebuild you from old parts. A flare of sunlight tangled and burning in your wind-ruffled hair. A bicep flexed and hardened by fingers pressed deep into six steel strings. And somewhere still, a mouth that never met with mine. I would place it now where mouths go, tip my own toward it to see if the past could be undone, or if the knot had been left too long, too tightly cinched in freeze and thaw in orbit and neglect. From broken pieces of a year, abandoned bric-a-brac stacked and teetering in the junkyard where I searched, came rustlings and cries. This was the soundscape of earthquake rubble, that eerie song listened to by rescuers and their dogs. Something was still alive there, though it defied all reason. Someone tapped a small stone against a decade, and I couldn't tell if it was you or if it was me. I had thought to bring you up in pieces, to tinker and hinge, to make you a new tongue and put words on it. But instead, you came up whole and leaned across me to type at my keyboard, so close I could trace the blue T's of your veins could smell cigarette smoke and the glisten of skin from a long-gone day in June. I meant to invent what I thought was you and then put you back again. But the story is told now, and here you are, as resurrected as any god and harder to disavow. Um, This poem is special for my two daughters. Um, it, was, uh, it was written at the behest of the eldest. There was a time when the three of us lived together in a house all alone, and uh, the girls used to call it the naked days. And um, my oldest thought it would be a great title for a poem. And, and lo, it is. It is. The naked days. 
The house then was a clearing of white light, bordered by a forest no one knew how to move through but the three of us. This was after and before there were men. This was the lull we called alone. Now, when I want to conjure that time, I try wind, wood smoke, wet earth, wolves. My daughters moved on all fours, hair scented with fallen oak leaves and torn branches. Nothing was quiet except the world outside us. We opened our mouths and could breathe the moon. This was after and before. Now the older tells the younger, remember the naked days. Those days when they wore their bodies unfathered, unbrothered, when they lived in their skin with their fast hearts, their lengthening bones. Then I lived with no one in my bed, the wide sheets as undisturbed as a sea I did not have to cross. When I rose, I was their mother, their other. We were three and all. We named ourselves with more than one name and balanced each on our tongues, gave them as offerings to the forgiving air. For a time that didn't last, we let ourselves answer to all of them. Um, I'm going to read a poem from my older book that I wasn't even planning to read, but um, it was brought up to me by someone, and I, this, this is for Shirley. It's called In Bed with Rhett Butler. <laughs> there wasn't a single copy left in the library except the three-volume set for the visually impaired. With letters the size of fingerprints, pages as long as a man's torso. At nine, I could only hoist volume one, and so my father carried two and three home to my room where he stacked them on the floor, and one I took and toppled toward my headboard, opening its span till pillow was consumed by Tara's red earth, till bare-shouldered scarlet teased the Tarleton twins, down the rib cords of my sensible bedspread. To read the lines at the top of each page, I had to lean my knees on the lines at the bottom and then slowly climb backwards off the book as I dodged a barrage of flame through falling Atlanta. When Scarlet begged Ashley to run with her from their bleeding knuckles, from her bare larder and petulant sisters, my knees teetered on their pending kiss, and then uncovered it. The turn of each vast page wafted a breeze as sultry as a palmetto fan at a Wilkes barbecue. I nursed a crick in the small of my back, too womanly for any child. No boy in the fourth grade could shine the boots of Rhett Butler. And so I stayed three days, three nights by flashlight in the secret tent of my sheets and emerged ruined <laughs> for finding even a shred of joy in any suitor who didn't sport a big 
Panama hat and bend me backwards into a fire-lick sky. Maybe it was the charm and dash of Captain Butler alone, but maybe it was also the colossal size of the gun runner that he stormed through the folds of my covers, the huge red tip of his cigar raised like a torch through a dream of words. Um, I guess I'm going to read just one more poem. And um, I'm trying to decide which one to do. I think I'll do Beneath the Code. This is a poem that's based on um, the Hayes Code, the, the motion picture code that um, ruled what was moral and what wasn't and what we could see and what we couldn't see and that held sway you know, through the movies in the 30s and the 40s and, and TV into the early 60s. Beneath the Code. Somehow we respond. Despite the twin bed love of Lucy and Ricky, of Laura and Rob, despite that one chaste foot planted at all times on the floor, somehow desire popped the cork from the bottle, even though Jeannie never flashed a peep of navel, even though the castaways lived for years bound inside their tight little hammocks. Our mothers were startled by tongues after girlhood spent watching kisses timed with stopwatches by a code that decreed that lips be kept closed and dry. What happened after kissing was always metaphor. Waves pounded. Fireworks boomed. After Stella came down the stairs to run her fingers over Stanley's wet skin, to be carried through the portieres, a hydrant gushed across a steamy street. After Carrie pulled Eva from death on Mount Rushmore and into an upper berth, we cut to the train as it entered and was swallowed by tunnel. Our mother's bodies waited for high tide, for pyrotechnics. They waited through fumbling hands and husbands, they waited while we were born and began to wait beside them. Whatever a fallen woman had done to fall was never shown, lest we like that plummet too well, <laughs> lest we lick our lips and make a fast to-do list of sins. Though we dreamed hard edges into the soft focus lens, a way to drag our heels to slow the quick dissolve we knew the penance for those dreams was to move across silk and gossamer like a broken nail. From restraint, we learned still more restraint, to be proud of surviving on such tiny portions. Though each of us was born into our bodies, we took up only a part of them. Thanks. Thank you, Melanie. That was lovely. And finally, um, Julia Wendell is going to read. Julia Wendell's new poetry chapbook is Take the Spoon, Main Street Rag, 2014. Her previous publications include The Sorry Flowers, Word Tech Editions, 2009, Dark Track, Word Tech, 2005, Wheeler Lane, Igneous Press, 1998, and An Otherwise Perfect History, Ithaca House Press, 1988. 
as well as the chapbooks Rustelrig, Finishing Line Press, Scared Money Never Wins, also Finishing Line, and Fires at Yellowstone, Back Eye Press. An equestrian athlete and owner of a horse farm, Wendell also authored Finding My Distance, A Year in the Life of a Three-Day Event Rider, a book that is part memoir, part poetry collection. She has received Yaddo Colony and Breadloaf Writers Conference fellowships. Take This Spoon, the new chapbook, is full of fresh, exciting pieces of language that make us sit up and feel alive. One of my favorites of these, the phrase, our sweet short winter, which comes at the very end, also nicely encapsulated my experience of the book as a whole. Life is sweet in these poems, but it's also short and wintry. This is a book that is bittersweet. An unflinching examination of devastating addictions, especially addictions passed from mothers to daughters, it also manages to be a celebration, complete with recipes, of family, animals, language, and food. You're the one I can't seem to dance without, the poet tells the angel of sadness. But it's a cheerful, brave dance, one we want to take part in. Please help me to welcome Julia Wendell. Thank you very much. It's great being here. I think I, I read here once before. Can everybody hear me all right? But it was ages ago, ages and ages. Um, so it's lovely to be back. And um, that, thank you for the introduction. That was wonderful. And um, it's, it's sort of hard to read after those introductions. They're so thoughtful. Um, anyway, uh, this uh, book began as a cookbook and... Um, that was a compilation. I did it for my kids. Um, it was a compilation of recipes that my mother had, and I, you know, I just wanted to preserve them after her death in a way that I could pass them down to my kids. And anyway, so I, I did this res- I did this cookbook thing, and as I was compiling the recipes, I started, you know, I, I started to write some poems about not only the recipes, but all the memories that they evoked. And um, anyway, so then all of a sudden I was writing more poems than compiling recipes, and the whole book turned around, and it became a book of poems. Um, And so I thought that I would start, I'm going to read a few poems just from this book. Uh, They're all interrelated, all having to do with um, food, in one way or another, and we're probably all starving now, so this is probably like going to the grocery store when you're hungry. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, anyway, um, so I'm going to start with dessert, a good place to start. And this poem is called Chocolate Sauce. And, um, you know, with the, with the idea that um, a, lot, a lot more ingredients go into our cooking and our, and our recipes than simply ingredients. <clears throat> Chocolate sauce. I'm here to entice you to sit down at your abandoned dining room table. Even if the kids have long gone, their shipwrecked seats still stained with dried ketchup and soy sauce. Invite someone over for dinner you haven't seen in a while. Begin to set aside the time with four things at hand. 
chocolate, cream, sugar, and pinches of any sweet something you choose to add. Maybe that longed-for trip to St. John or new career. Maybe the words, I'm sorry, or I love you, essential ingredients in anyone's kitchen. So then I had this early, we probably all have first early memories of um, cooking with our mothers, perhaps. And um, my mother was loved to cook in her earlier years, and she had sort of some requirements that all of her recipes, all of her food, they had to be um, easy, and they had to be very fattening, <laughs> and then they had to be delicious. And so you never think of a cheese souffle as being easy to make, right? Well, if you have one ingredient um, that a lot of people don't know about, maybe they do, but I'm imagining, at least I used to think that they didn't, and it's called cream of tartar, and it makes, renders any making of any cheese souffle easy. So this is called cream of tartar. Pot-holdering a cloud of toasted souffle, its voluptuous body billowing over the dish, we kept its infallible, flawless secret, referencing the butter-stained recipe card by memory only. Teamwork, we'd wink to each other, and lots of stirring, never revealing what separated mother and daughter from our guests' amazement at the seeming perfection, fleeting, and only as good as our shortcut. A bitter white powder lodged in a glass spice jar that doubles in volume without fail what it starts with, transforming impossible into easy. So then, um, as I uh, came, uh, as I was looking through all these old re- uh, recipes, you know what? Uh, over and over, I, I came upon my mother's handwriting, um, which, you know, it's it's for me, it was it was more poignant than the old photographs because the her handwriting just felt so living and breathing and moving, um, in a way that a static photo does not. Um, so, anyway, this poem is called My Mother's Handwriting. Um, and I think that's, that's all you need to know. Um, hold on. Individual as DNA. It spoke to me from fridge notes Christmas tags, and report cards I took back to school with her hurried scrawl at the bottom. Even now, the ache when I find her half-cursive, half-print, as unique as her voice was, sonorous and youthful, even as she aged. But she is nowhere more present than in her stash of recipe cards marked vegetables and salads, meat and poultry, as if she just penned the headings yesterday. 
I scan the green cardboard box for something yummy and familiar, reading her hand-me-down script, more alive than the cherry tree blooming outside my window, more permanent than my own body that once slipped out of hers. My half-breed penmanship reduced, like anyone's, to scribble in the end. The way we sign our names, caress a cold ankle or pull up a sheet. The way we say goodbye or fix a perfect salad. She returns to me in fading ballpoint pen. Press the garlic into the sides of the wooden bowl. Add tons of garlic and Parmesan cheese. Toss and serve. I savor every dash. So, um, I guess you've figured out that food was fairly uh, and a fairly obsessive issue in my family, and um, uh, there was either uh, either too much or not enough. Either way, it would tip. And so, this poem is called "Too Much Is Too Much." And, um, yeah, it's in a few different little, little tiny sections. One, she cooked by feel in a language known only to her. If we loved it, she added more of it, garlic, chocolate, alcohol. Six cloves became tons. A quarter cup turned into sloppy dollops from the bottle. Too much was impossible. Three. We couldn't hack a salad. Might as well have eaten a garlic bulb whole. The rum balls would pickle us. The alolio was as earthy as earth. Her bloody, spicy Marys made us gag. We laughed about the lack of specificity as she ground salt blizzards and handfuls of pungent crescents into the salad bowl's wooden sides. We teased the drunken hard sauce, the cheese-clotted souffle, pushing the overspiced, underdone food around our dinner plates, granting her expectations of politeness and praise. Four. More is a slippery measure of one at a time, not all at once, of scant, not heaping, of suggestion, not rebuke. Why didn't I have the heart to tell her? next poem is called Dieting. And I should say, and I didn't even think about this today because um, in this poem, the horses come in at the end. And I, I was thinking, because I, I, I spend most of my life with, with, with animals, um, not with people, but with animals. And, um, and, I've, and I was thinking today about how I, my turn to the animals um, who are never, 
who never, never put themselves on diets. They are never self-conscious about food in the way that I was raised. One, my mother was always on a diet, or about to be. One brother was fat, the other a bodybuilder. Yours truly, the anorexic, addicted to not eating. Father was the only one impartial to food. Two, we are always eating or about to or just done. We are hungry, we are sated, we are wishing we hadn't. We are making up for it or planning our denials or confessing them. Three, I surround myself with cats who kill and eat, dogs who eat what's killed, and horses who eat what's given to them. Self-consciousness doesn't ruin their appetite or enjoyment. They don't judge what they consume or long for what they won't allow themselves. They don't confuse who they are with what they eat, fearing they won't be loved if they are fat or don't cook or overcook or nearly kill themselves by making up for their gluttony with fasting. Four. They nicker when I enter the morning barn, ears pricked. They come to the pipe gate and watch me and wait in the evening. As wet brand slops onto their noses, they lap it up with simple, unfettered relish, then quietly munch their flakes of dessert. Contentment, its sure, steady rhythm. I'm going to read uh, four more poems, but they're not long. Is that all right? Is that all right? Yeah, okay. Well, I just, you know, I mean, I'm the third reader, and you guys are probably now really hungry. <laughs> um, this is called Marrow, and it's really about how, you know, uh, food addiction, like any other addiction, n- it never goes away. It can only be managed, really. One, my children tell me I'm getting thinner. How would I know? I haven't weighed myself for 26 years. I don't do scales, I tell the doctor. Clearly, I don't have a problem. Glancing at my concave stomach, a dubious conclusion. Still, I believe in my thinness, few words, small gifts, a bar of soap in decorous wrapping, smelling only faintly of honeysuckle or tangerine. Having missed the appointment, run the red light, eaten the apple after 56 years of abstention, how does an orphan ask for more? Two. That's how I know the dragon is still at it gnawing an elbow in the dark corner of her smoky lair, sucking and licking the bone clean, until all that's left is a memory of flesh sustained by a carefully rationed diet. 
the day's meagerness followed by evening's abundance, vinous tumblers, bowls of buttered popcorn, a lifetime spent looking forward to cocktail hour, conceived in the bowels of Marion's kitchen, a vodka lift at her side, whisking salad dressing or souffle. Go pour yourself a spot of wine, she encouraged 16-year-old me, wine and water nearly synonymous to a lonely Episcopalian. Marion wanted company. Here, take this spoon, she'd wink, with a note of conspiracy in her swollen voice, which I learned to use as tools, voice and spoon, to help her or feed myself. Either way, I was in it for good. How could I ever be too thin? Mother's Day. In three short sections. When my mother got sick, she entrusted her recipes to the new chef, who was also the old gardener when he wasn't cooking for company. His forte was pruning trees. Aren't these exquisite popcorn shrimp? They were swimming in too much oil and yummy Brussels sprouts, she'd ask rhetorically, though the green golf balls needed carving with a knife. After each nibble, she'd lower her sword, pausing with that thousand-mile stare, the curtain falling on Lear. Her death certificate read congestive heart failure, but we all knew better. Two. Father tried to force her to eat. His modus, the louder, the better. Foiled by the anorexic's silent weapon. No one can force anyone to swallow. Three. My mother, the queen of no thank you. She couldn't resist the glamour of being Jackie Murray Bird svelte, so remorse claimed her in the end, and maxims reigned. Push aside chocolate, whipped cream, even Brussels sprouts brushed with too much butter. Allow guilt to drive you, even on Mother's Day. Two more poems. Um, so this poem is called Happy Hour. <laughs> um, and um, uh, yeah, here fish become the important. See, I'm surprising you. Happy Hour. <laughs> okay. The drums umpa umpa and the violin's ecstatic squeal prepared us for salmon sharks circling and homing in on their prey as we sprawled on the sofa, our bellies full of stir-fry. We could almost feel the eons driving the salmon to swim hundreds of miles to spawn and die. The sharks interrupted such dedicated pilgrims, consuming one in four, the narrator's velvety baritone warned us. Meanwhile, 
The music ground on with its dark bias, fish leaping in frenzied exhaustion. We pushed our plates away. On our lips, a rhyme of salt and hunger abated, a tipping toward whatever's beyond us. And I began with chocolate sauce and ending with chocolate snow. Um, and this is in reference to um, actually the making of a, a chocolate, uh, not chocolate souffle, chocolate mousse, chocolate snow. Oh, and then there's a, one little trick. Um, I'm sure maybe some of you know it. I mean, I, this was an example of my mother always needed needing the things to be easy. Um, there's this trick, and then it looks really complicated once you've done it, but it's really super easy. If you just take a, a block of chocolate, you know, and you take a serrated knife and you just sort of go along the edges, and then it flakes off on top of your of your um, chocolate mousse, and it looks just it looks like you've spent hours doing it, but it's super easy. Chocolate snow. It's the smooth, pale texture of beaten yolks and whites. The deliberate sauce bubbling, but not brimming over. It's the hand that doesn't follow any map, yet knows when something's done, as each takes seamlessly to each, spooning in a king-size double boiler. It's the whipping and the chill to follow, shaving the dark square block into chocolate flakes, blizzarding the tongue of our sweet short winter. Thank you. Oh, so thank you. Um, oh, thank you, Joy. That was really lovely. Um, I wonder if the poets would mind coming up to the front. We're just, we have time, I think, just for a little bit of Q&A, if that's okay with you. Um, just maybe just take a few questions. If anyone has a question, um, I can bring you the mic because we're recording for a podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Is it okay? We're running a little bit. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Anyone? I can I can come up with questions if there isn't one from the audience. I have a question for you, Shelley. Since I'm a scientist and a microbiologist, I wondered why you were so obsessed with parasites when there are such lovely viruses around and so on. <laughs> I, <laughs> viruses are my favorite microbes, so I just, I just wondered, parasites are kind of yucky. Uh, no, but I mean, parasites are, um, I guess you know you're a good parasite, right, if the host doesn't, isn't aware of you. So I think that That's true. symbolically that was kind of more, more important in terms of love and relationships and the economy and, and things like that. But I will look into viruses. Yeah. 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 There I was do. Ebola when I started no, the next but, obsession. But now, you know. I forgot my question except for which poem was the memoir? In which book? Oh, oh, writing memoir? That That's in the... Yes. Um, the what the neighbors know. Okay, anything more you want to say about it? I'd love to hear. Well, um, 
it was a as as I said, it was a poem that I worked um, on with my creative writing class, and uh, perhaps the reason it it came back to me and and I decided to to write it was because I had recently stumbled on to the boy that I was in love with at that time on Facebook, <laughs> and uh, we we had begun a, a conversation back and forth and. Um, I told him I was going to write it, and he was intrigued, and so I wrote it and sent it to him. That's that. That was it. It was someone that you knew back then back, that you were in love with. Back when I was fifteen. Well, yeah, I've got a similar project uh, I'm working on for a poll. What did he say about it? What he? Oh, he was intrigued. Was he, was what the the, the 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 coolest thing of all was I found out he named his daughter after me. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> He didn't like me when I was 15, but he named his daughter after wow. me. So, hey. Huh. Good thing. <laughs> Julia, I wanted to ask you if you found uh, writing your poems, your book, uh, cathartic in terms of your relationship with your mother. Um, oh, yes. I would definitely say that's true. Um, but only in the writing. Not, not now, you know? Um, and um, so that period uh, of catharsis is very short, actually, um, because then they have to become something else in the in the revising. And my my I revise a ton, but it, you know the moment that moment when we're actually creating, um, it's so short. Does that make sense? Did that answer mm-hmm. your question? Um, maybe could you all say something about your process? Because that's interesting to me that you revise so much. Um, maybe just each of you could say something brief about other, like what it's like for you to create a poem. Like how long does it usually take? The morning or night? Coffee or not? That kind of that kind of thing. Um, the best poems I think that that I write tend to come on a wave. That that if it hits me and I'm able to get to you know a computer right away um, it, they're very successful and they often come out nearly whole and um, those are the ones that I live for they don't happen all that often and oftentimes I have to force force things out and then those require a lot more revision yeah, I revise a lot um, I think even when I don't revise on the page I revise on my my head, mm-hmm. so even what finally makes it onto the page as a first draft isn't really um, a first draft. Um, coffee only early on, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I do most of my writing um, at night. I'm a definitely a night person, and I feel like you have that um, advantage of knowing you probably won't be interrupted except by your own fatigue, versus in the morning, there's always... We, we cannot be night people because... Yeah, we have the horses get hungry early in the morning, so so I have to get I have to get up even earlier than that to to uh, get anything accomplished. How early? Well, not I'm actually lying right now. <laughs> I mean, it used to be that way. Now it's a little bit different. It used to be super early, but but Barrett's at four a.m. still. Er. That's early. That's pretty early. <laughs> Very early. Um, are there? Oh, there's another question. Yeah. 
our last question. Julia, um, you, I was very moved by that poem where you were talking about your mother's handwriting and the, the way her letters were on the page. My mom, the big greatest gift she gave us is she wrote entire books in her handwriting of recipes. Ooh. And we are six children, and she wrote it six times for each Whoa. of us. And uh, so I use it all the time. And, and um, I was wondering, given what you experienced, whether you were thinking of doing something similar. And it's so different than doing anything on the computer this is really beautiful when you see the well, actual letters form well yeah i didn't do it by hand but i did it you're right i mean and that's true but honestly my my handwriting i don't think that would go over very big but um however you know that's how the that this this poetry book started and, and i did it for them and then i and i went back and i found all kinds of old pictures like of my mother as a young girl mm. and my grandparents and the buggy and the you know black and whites in the twenties and yeah. you know it was just they were amazing, amazing to, to find and yeah. so I don't know I don't know if I'd go back and handwrite although I do I do write all my you write on the computer I, I do so I write everything you, by hand you first. first drafts always on yeah, always always write not by hand thank you you were a great audience thank yeah, you thank very you. much thank for coming. You. Yeah, thank you, Shailene. Um, oh, no, thank you. Uh, well, we we usually do a closing poem, but do you want to? We are running a little bit late, so what would you guys like to do one last poem, or do you want to just? No, I'm confident. Okay. <laughs> Wait, I'm was fine. that yes to the last poem or no? Well, we're fine. We're, we're, we're fine. Okay. I mean, okay. Well, no, that's fine. That'll give more time for people to socialize. But um, Kim was gonna say, do. Do you want to say goodbye? <laughs> Some final. Uh, just a, a, a short um, well, thank you to everyone for coming and please stay and enjoy refreshments, chat with the poets purchase books um, and please uh, fill out evaluation forms and uh, thank you very much again to our wonderful poets